once everyone starts to accept that struggling does not equal weakness, I think we'll find more and more doctors being more comfortable and open with talking about their struggles. And the more we share, just like what you and I are doing, Nadine, the, you know, the better it's going to be for everyone. That's how we're going to change the culture. That's how we're going to, you know, break down the stigma even further. Hi, this is Dr. Nadine, and welcome to another episode of Health Razors. Today, my guest is Dr. Dana Fang, a general practitioner based in Australia. She is also the host of the podcast, Junior Doctors Corner. She is a young doctor who was inspired to help budding healthcare practitioners learn to care for themselves in order to sustain a career in medicine. This is the second episode dedicated to social health, caring for others. Compassionate caregivers deserve care too. If you know anyone who needs to hear this message, please share the episode. Dana, we met a couple of years now, doesn't time fly. You asked me to be on your wonderful podcast. And I must thank you because that episode has stayed with me for a very long time. I don't know if you did it on purpose, but you gave me such wonderful space to come to terms with some of the grief that I hadn't let myself completely process after leaving medicine. I thought I was fine, but yeah, you you just really gave me a really nurturing space to talk about my process and really explore how I felt, to come to terms with how I felt moving forward, to start the process of being really grateful for that journey and having no regrets and being and really being comfortable with that. So, I really can't thank you enough. You you did a lot for me. You're the one that I should be thanking because it was a really important podcast episode. Not a lot of doctors feel comfortable talking about leaving medicine. I guess there's a lot of shame and stigma to it, you know, giving up on something that requires so much time, energy, money, you know. So, and, and then there's a lot of expectation from society for us to soldier on even when we feel like we can't. So um, it was really good to, you know, hear from someone who's managed to um, not only just leave medicine, but go on to have a really great career in still health related, but, you know, not directly medical um, kind of field. So yeah, thank you so much for uh, doing that podcast episode. Dana, how did you have the foresight at such an early stage in your career to start really thinking about what it means to care for yourself so that your career can be sustainable, so that you can continue to have empathy for your patients by taking care of yourself? How did that start for you? It started from day one as an intern, medical intern. So it's not something that I thought about much prior to that. I think in medical school, I had rose-colored glasses on and especially, you know, when I graduated, speaking to my uh, back then, I guess, senior colleagues um, who had just finished internship, they spoke very highly of their experiences at the particular hospital that I was going to start at. And, you know, I was really excited. I was also really confident in myself and my abilities to take on medical internship. But that was until um, I swapped rotations with a colleague who had just had a beautiful baby girl and he wanted to be around to help care for her and support his partner and he drew the short straw and got a um, rural rotation first up so um, it was in a very tiny town 900 kilometers I don't know what that is in miles but it's very very far away um, you know from the main city um, where his uh, baby and partner would be so at that time I um, thought I don't have any, you know, 
commitments that's keeping me in the city. Why don't I put my hand up and take this, you know, swap rotations with this person, um, this colleague, and help him out? You know, I don't mind going first because I was scheduled to go there at, towards the end of the year anyway. Why don't I just get it out of the way and then, you know, enjoy the rest of my year in the city? And um, my first day there was quite a shock. Um, it it made me realize that no one's really gonna look out for me or look after me unless I, you know, really do it for myself. Um, but I guess I didn't fully arrive at that conclusion until, you know, later on as the year progressed and more things happened. And eventually I found myself in the, um, you know, patient's chair. So seeing a psychologist and GP and things like that. But I think that was the catalyst for all of it, you know, what happened on my first day of um, medical internship. So what happened after that? Because you have talked about your journey of having a tough, that being that year, that year being very, very tough. So tell us a little bit more about what began to develop as the year went by. Yeah, so that was a very tough first day, you know, with um, very little support from seniors. I think a lot of people know the story. I I recorded um, an episode just covering that really horrible day. Um, And what happened was I came back to the city and then um, I started on an orthopedic rotation where the uh, one of the more senior registrars, um, so the, the senior trainees, was a known bully. Um, he, he bullied everyone around him um, because his bosses bullied him, you know, would scream at him and yell at him and therefore he would do the same to the rest of us. And, you know, I started um, to have almost little mini anxiety, not quite attacks, not fully, but, you know, anxiety episodes every time I went to bed and thought, oh my God, I'm going to have to go back to work again tomorrow and, you know, face this bully. Um, So, and then in amongst that, my boyfriend at the time, who was a doctor three years more senior than me, he then broke up with me because he felt that I wasn't coping, that uh, therefore it meant um, that I was I guess in some sense weak or not good enough and, you know, and, and he couldn't handle that. And I'm sure a lot of it was his own issues with feeling not good enough himself, I guess. And that was probably really reflected, reflecting back onto him. And, um, he just didn't want to deal with, um, any of the emotional stuff that comes with it because I was in tears a lot. Um, so, um, yeah, it, it just one after another things compounded, you know, or even like um, little things that would happen at work where I had a disagreement with the uh, nurse unit manager and that would just send me to tears. So um, I, I guess eventually, I think about f- five months in, I started to question myself, you know, my ability as a doctor, you know, um, whether I could actually continue on um, in medicine, you know, if it was going to be this horrible all the time. I mean, in reality, it's not. But, you know, I, at that time, all I could think about was if this just carried on, I, I don't think I I could continue. Um, and I think what really helped me continue was my uh, talking to my parents. I was really worried about telling them that I, I I felt like I needed to leave medicine in order to save myself or save my sanity. And my parents were, uh, in particular, my dad was the one who really, really pushed me into medicine. And then, you know, they could see that I was in so much distress and they said, you know, okay, that's fine. What do you want to do? What? Let's think about this. You know, what else can you do? And that really um, took the weight off my shoulders to know that there wasn't still this pressure from them for me to continue despite, you know, how much I was suffering. So 
that actually gave me strength to continue because I thought to myself, I can leave anytime I want, you know, so I don't have to do it right now, but I can leave anytime I want. So um, I just kept going. And it wasn't until I finished my intern year and was able to, I guess, recover from some of that those injuries and after talking to my psychologist and things like that I I had enough hindsight to go okay not all of this is my fault um a lot of it were things that I could not control I just needed some more support you know um anyone who were who if someone else was in my position, like one of my colleagues, they would probably have um, suffered as well or struggled as well. You know, it, it doesn't mean that I'm weak or I'm a bad doctor. Um, you know, it was just unlucky that I was put in these situations, but I came out of it alive. And even more importantly, none of my patients died, you know, so I... Um, thought to myself, well, this could also happen to other junior doctors that come after me or have already, in fact, come before me. But no one in medicine, at least in Australia anyway, and and I think from talking to a lot of people by now after running this podcast for almost um, uh, three years now, uh, no one's comfortable with sharing these experiences because it it kind of makes them sound like they're weak because of the whole struggling factor. Like if you're weak, if you struggle, you're weak. So no one wants to talk about it to come across as weak. But I thought, you know, um, there probably are others and I think I should speak up and, you know, make this podcast so that, um, you know, hopefully if someone um, has gone through or is about to go through similar events as I have, um, they will have that knowledge that they're not alone because I've been through it as well and I've come out okay, you know, I've survived it and therefore they will as well. So that was the premise behind Junior Doctors Corner. Tina, thank you. I know that you've told your story so many times and it never gets easier, does it? I mean, I could see the emotion. I could see you living through it, you know, with your body language, the expression on your face, the emotion in your voice. So I really thank you for being able to be one of those people who steps up and wants to tell the truth to help others. The other thing that I heard in your story was this need for support and understanding, this need for empathy, this need for love so that you could have that outstretched hand to help you through a really difficult moment because you're a human being. You didn't get it from the boyfriend at the time. And I wonder if he just, you know, no judgment. Maybe he was struggling so much himself and couldn't show it that he couldn't lend that outstretched hand. It was too much for him to come up with that, to meet you where you were because he couldn't, because then he'd have to look at himself. And I also heard this tremendous relief in that your parents, you might not have felt this way or may not, not have been explicitly expressed before, but they loved you as a person no matter what happened. And to be able to feel that in your moment of greatest need helped carry you through to see your mission to doing your life's work, which is to help patients. I love that you were able then to even transcend your own need and, and look around and say, wow, there are other people in my position who really need this. And we absolutely have to talk about this. So thank you. Tell me a little bit about the journey of the podcast. Has it been healing to you in some ways? Have you noticed changes in some of your audience members? Um, maybe not your audience Maybe the audience members, your listeners, and maybe even some of the guests who really felt like me 
that they found this space where they were able to have some dignity as a person. Yeah. So when I first thought of making up some kind of support platform or even network for junior doctors, I, I, um, podcasting wasn't the first thing that came up in my mind. I was always more of a blogger and I eventually arrived at podcasting because I was doing at least um, 40 minute walks a day, you know, to and from work um, in total. And I would spend that time listening to podcasts. And I thought, what a great way for a a doctor to, I guess, multitask, you know, um, because it's going to be so hard to read a blog post while I was walking to work. So I just thought maybe podcasting would be a great idea. I could actually you know, when you hear someone's voice in your ears, that's really reassuring or, um, or I guess in some cases soothing. Um, I, I thought it would have a bigger impact. I thought podcasting would have, um, would be the best way to reach other junior doctors. And yeah, I, I talked to a couple of um, trusted friends and, you know, tossed around some ideas in terms of the naming of the podcast and what it would do and things like that and eventually arrived at Junior Doctors Corner and I started off by interviewing close friends you know kind of technically as a practice run you know but on topics that were still relevant but um, you know easy to talk about and that kind of helped build up my courage to then go ask other people Um, So I just started off small with thinking about who in my circle can I ask, you know, who have I met that would be open to this? And, you know, it kind of became a one thing led to another. Um, One speaker, after talking to one speaker, that would then lead on to another, you know, guest speaker and so on and so forth. And I'm sure you have a similar experience as well, Nadine. Um, And a lot of them have kind of actually then say to me, you know, usually or typically at the end of the podcast recording, I I wish someone had done what you have done back when I was training as a junior doctor because a lot of the people that I've interviewed so far have been um, more senior and I guess I didn't, it wasn't intentionally um, that way, but they do have more perspective. They do have more hindsight and, and experience. So, you know, uh, therefore, they're probably the best people to uh, give out advice and, and share their wisdom. Um, but, yeah, I, I do hear a lot of, I wish you were around back when I was training. <laughs> I'm sure. Do you have any favorite moments? I tell everyone no because it's kind of like choosing my uh, a favorite child. <laughs> like, yeah, I just can't imagine, you. you know, because I really genuinely loved every episode I've recorded. I know it, everyone probably thinks like, she's lying. It's not true. It's just not possible. But it is <laughs> like every episode I've recorded and I've put out, I have genuinely loved. Otherwise, I would not put it out, you know. So um, it and every time I, after I've recorded the episode and I go back and I edit it and I get the joy of listening and, and re, you know, experience the interview again, it, it just brings me so much joy. Um, so I, I, I guess if I were to draw on um, a more recent memory, um, one of the more recent episodes that I've recorded this year um, that really brought me a lot of joy was of um, Drs. Tim and Bao, um down in New South Wales. I guess maybe they kind of reminded me of myself because they've just gone and taken a problem and went, okay, we're going to do something about it. Um, they've started this social enterprise to try and 
help end, I guess, malaria by um, selling T-shirts that are permethrin infused so that they ward off mosquitoes. But the profits from that all go to uh, buy mosquito nets for um, uh, malaria endemic countries. So, you know, um, I really, really... Um, loved talking to them about the whole process and 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 what they've done. They've just basically gone. Well, yes, we are medical students slash junior doctors, but we can do other things as well outside of just clinical day to day seeing patients. So that's a great point. What do you think in all of your learning and reflecting? in doing the podcast and thinking yourself about this, what do you think are some effective practices for true self-care to sustain yourself in a career that does take a lot? I guess what I've learned from speaking to so many speakers that are experts on this topic and, you know, doing all the workshops and, and conferences for this sort of stuff... I've come to learn that it is different for different people. Mm-hmm. So I can't answer that for myself. Mm-hmm. And um, I've also come to learn that it is, uh, there, there are two types to self-care. There's like your basic where you're supposed to keep it running in the background for your everyday life because it just keeps things ticking along. It won't prevent your major disasters. Um, it it can help prevent burnout. Sometimes it, it, no matter how, you know, consistent you are with it, it won't. Um, but it is something that does overall, you know, kind of keep things on an even keel as much as possible and, and keep us going in the long run. And then there's the other bigger stuff that we just will need to do when the injury or the burnout has already occurred and and we kind of move on to that step. So, you know, for me, self-care and I, I, you know, will be honest, I'm not perfect at it. I'm also human. So, you know, and I also tell my patients this, please don't kick yourself, you know, over it if you have... Uh, missed a session at the gym or something, you know, you're only human. You do what you can. The main thing is you keep trying. You don't stop trying and you do your best to be consistent at it. You're not going to be a hundred percent, but you just keep getting better at it 1% at a time. And cumulatively you will get really, really, really good at it. Um, So um, for me, it's um, regular movement, you know, whether it's in the form of um, Bikram yoga. I love my Bikram yoga. Um, um, exercise. So um, I had, it took me a really long time to figure out what kind of exercise I find enjoyable because I really hated the whole counting reps, you know, sets. And oh, it just, it, I find it really painful. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, in the past two years, I've discovered, um, a particular type of exercise, which I think was popularized in America first. And then this um, now friend of mine, she runs a studio that does um, hit to the beat. So high intensity interval training still, but you do it to the music as opposed to just do it like counting reps or counting down the seconds where you have to stop. <laughs> um, and um other things include, I guess, um, trying to eat well as much as possible. Although, you know, I do indulge in all the sweet things because I do have a sweet tooth and that itself can bring me joy, but I can't overdo it because then I end up going into the opposite spectrum of feeling miserable. Um, and then um, being mindful every day. So practicing mindfulness, it looks very different for me now compared to um Years ago when I first started, I used to have to, you know, really sit down and, and, and do guided meditations and things like that. But now instead it's more of a bit more integrated in things that I do, sort of even if it's just brushing my teeth, trying to keep my thoughts from running away with itself, sort of coming back to what I'm actually doing. So, you know, being present. And I guess... Uh, practicing Bikram yoga, that's already incorporated in that as well. So, um, but it just helps with 
um, if we're doing it day to day um, as opposed to kind of forcing ourselves like, oh my God, I have to sit for two hours, but I don't have mm-hmm. two hours to actually sit and meditate. So it doesn't have to be this big thing. It can even just be a five minute thing, you know? And I know that you, uh, Nadine, you're building like this, the MD toolkit on trying to help other doctors to, you know, be mindful and meditate. And, um, I'm sure you agree with me. It, it doesn't have to be this big, massive thing. No, because if it is, as a busy person, if you do put a lot of pressure on yourself and say it has to be this amount of time at this particular, um, in this particular place, and it has to be every day, then it becomes an overwhelming mountain to climb, and you won't do it, quite frankly. And I like the joy I can hear in your voice too, finding the joy in things that you actually like doing so that they sustain you. Yes. I think a lot of people make the mistake of believing that they need to do it, uh, you know, do a particular activity simply for the sake of their self-care or well-being. But part of, you know, replenishing your well-being is to find joy if that makes sense. Um, So I always tell my patients, you know, particularly the ones where they come in and they say, I can't lose weight. I'm really struggling. You know, Um, it's, it's to find something that you enjoy. It it shouldn't be a punishing activity, you know? And yes. And, and, and I guess the last thing that I've, I've have found helpful and I, it's been, I guess, brought up by many um, self-care or well-being experts uh, that I've come across anyway, is uh, some form of journaling. So mm-hmm. I have fallen off the wagon when it came to sort of regular journaling of my thoughts and all of that. And I'm kind of trying to go back into it, but it just hasn't brought me a lot of joy. So instead I've changed it and gone back to something that I know always brings me a lot of, um, uh, I guess, reprieve, I guess, from the, all the, the terrible things that have been going on, uh, which is gratitude journaling. So just writing down three things um, every, most days <laughs> of the week <laughs> when I do manage um, that I'm really grateful for, you know, just shifting the focus away from all the negative things to the more positive. You know, we don't have to write pages and pages of words. All we have to do is just write three little sentences and that can be enough. Um, so that's sort of on a more basic level. And then there's this stuff that you do when, can I swear on this podcast? <laughs> I, Absolutely. I <laughs> the stuff that you do when shit hits the fan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, how um, you've alluded to sort of burnout prevention, I guess. Well, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. basic stuff does help prevent um, burnout. And I guess if we, maybe we'll, we'll talk about burnout prevention slightly separately because there are a couple extra steps to that. But, you know, if you have already hit the wall, you're already in burnout mode. Um, doing all those things isn't going to undo that. Um, I mean, you should still continue to do it, but it's going to be a lot harder because we're already exhausted. You know, our brain's already fried. We're emotional. Um, what actually helps is taking time off, like just, you know, and just not really doing much and not putting the expectation or the pressure on ourselves to do much, you know, it's just letting the body recover. It's kind of the same as if we had fractured our wrist, you know, what do we do? We immobilize it, we allow it to heal and, and recover. Um, but because we're in a profession and also we're, we're, a lot of us have type A personalities, we, we're perfectionists, we want to keep pushing, keep doing, 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 otherwise it's not right, we have to do something, we even have to do something about when we are burnt out. Um, it's actually just, yeah, switching off and taking time off. So 
I think that's it's fair to say that you essentially went over what I usually say for last, which is what is your definition of, of health, but you've already outlined that very well. So what I did want to ask you about further, what intrigued me during your description of how you maintain your own self-care is do you feel that taking care of yourself is having benefits for how you approach your patients? Does it bring you more empathy? Are you able to put yourself in their shoes, have that compassion? Have you felt those benefits in yourself being extended to your patients? Oh yeah, absolutely. So I would say that if, and and just thinking about times when I was really tired or close to burning out again, I could feel myself being a lot more um, impatient with my patients <laughs> and, and, and possibly coming close to being snappy with them and um, not paying as much attention to them what, with, you know, the things that they're telling me, you know, the history that they're giving and also not wanting to dig a bit deeper, you know, um, in general practice, you see patients and they kind of drop you little Easter eggs, I guess. And it's kind of your job to then go, actually, this is important. Even though they try to frame it in a very casual way, they're hoping that you will pick it up and, and go, okay, tell me more about this. Obviously, this is important to you, but you don't feel comfortable to just go outright and say it's important. You've kind of just, you know, for whatever reason, whether it's shame or guilt or whatever, you've just decided to drop it very subtly, hoping that I will pick it up for you. And I've noticed that if I haven't been doing my self-care and there, so it's a domino effect. If I haven't been doing my self-care, I'm more stressed or stressed a lot more easily. That also then impacts on the people that I love. So in this uh, instance, my partner, uh, I take it out on him. He snaps back at me and then, you know, it, it just escalates. And then I go to work and then I'm not in the mood to you know, deal with my patients. Mm -hmm. And therefore, when they drop me these Easter eggs, I kind of go, Oh, I don't want to touch it. I just want to ignore it and pretend I did not hear it. And so I'm not being the best doctor I can be in that sort of situation. So um, it is for the benefit of everyone for me to also look after myself. Do you ever feel like it's easier to be a little bit hopeless when it comes to the medical profession because everyone is so fast paced and there is still a bit of a, a pervasive culture of do and do well and do perfectly, as you said, and to suck it up. Kind of a militaristic type of we, we're tough when we get through it. Do you ever feel like it's difficult to keep that hope. I mean, you're definitely making change. And I hope I am too with my podcast. Absolutely. Do you ever wish it, it were more? Or if is it big enough? Is it, could, could we help reshape this culture because of everything you just said? It doesn't benefit patients to have doctors who are so miserable. I think there was a time when I felt that way, where I thought, especially talking to experts um, on this particular topic and realizing that this is actually an issue that's been around for a very, very mm -hmm. long time, you know, mm -hmm. even before I was born. And um, so it kind of, in some ways, if you let it, it can make you feel defeated because it's mm -hmm. like, it's been around for so long, you know, what makes me think that I could even put a dent in that kind of culture, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, the lucky thing for me is that as I've gone on this podcasting journey, I have then had the privilege to meet people such as yourself and other colleagues and, and doctors who are working very hard to... Um, 
change that culture. And that itself brings me a lot of hope, you know, knowing that I'm not the only one. And I can see the change, even though it's slow, it does take time. We can't change things overnight. It's the same for any um, issue that's, you know, global or um, at, at some kind of cultural or organizational level, it, it can take time. But the main thing is that we persist. You know, it, it's like we can't um, reverse the environmental damages that we've done just overnight. We can't just suddenly go from the way we're living to flipping into complete green in two seconds, unfortunately, because it's everything is, you know, so interconnected and, and complex. The main thing to focus on is what we can do individually to help contribute to the bigger change. So like I mentioned before, the whole keep chipping away at it and get better 1% at a time. 1% might not seem a lot, but cumulatively it will have a very big impact. If you improve 1% each day in a year, you've improved by 365%. So, you know, that uh, concept brings me a lot of hope. Um, and as long as everyone does their little bit in some small way, um, I think we will get there eventually. I hear that. Thank you. So I'm going to turn the podcasting interviewing microphone over to you. Do you have something that you're curious about to ask? I wanted to then ask you because you've, you know, brought up this topic of hopelessness around the culture of medicine. Um, I now want you to um, please share with us um, you know, maybe some examples of um, things in medicine that you've seen so far that's given you hope. I'd love to give examples of from my mom's perspective because, you know, as we age, we do tend to see the see more doctors for whatever reason, and she had two particular, almost back to back experiences that took me from hopelessness to there is hope and there are people who take time. And not that I haven't experienced that myself. I have experienced really caring doctors who remember why they went into medicine and still insist on practicing that way. But so my mom went to see a cardiologist because she uh, was having some palpitations. And the cardiologist, first time meeting her, she's in, you know, she's in her 70s. And, you know, this is a person who's afraid. This is a first visit to a cardiologist. This is a first cardiac type event. He had his back to her the whole time she was in the office typing into her EMR, her electronic medical record. And he was very curt and he was very, he, he just wanted to get through the appointment as quickly as possible. And she really felt terrible <laughs> leaving him. And she said, you know, I just, I can't go see him again because, you know, I can't have a doctor who, barely has the time to acknowledge what I look like, <laughs> let alone lay hands on me. You know, he, he barely examined her. And then she said that she's, go, uh, she's found a new nurse practitioner for different matters. She wanted to have someone holistic who would put everything together for her. And she said, the woman was absolutely lovely. She took her time with my mom. She went over all of her medications, made sure they made sense together, insisted that she ask questions, really took her time. So that was a conversation we had last week. And that made me feel so much better because I felt like this is an example of, even though it's easy to you know, we're wired, our amygdalas are wired for fear and all that, and just to really go easily into that dark place. So 
I'm actually finding maintaining a practice of hope, which I've started recently. When I hear stories like that of benevolence and true care and true connection and integrity to the career you've gone into, which is to care for people, and especially for in a situation like that where where your patient is really scared. My mom was really scared. And to um, really honor that. It, that that made me feel good. So they're out there. I just think we need to keep having these conversations. And I no longer think that it's acceptable to be a bully because you were treated that way. So you're just going to keep passing that behavior down. I really don't understand who benefits from that type of behavior. Because as you said so eloquently, everyone benefits when the doctor is pretty solidly happy taking care of him or herself too. So the uh, the mission and the vision live on. They both live on through through our work. So I'm really happy to know you. I'm so happy that um, you are also someone that I look at and say, there is hope. I can always, when I connect with you on social media on a regular basis, say, That's a person who's really looking out for humanity. So thank you. Thank you. That's very kind of you to say that. Any last words or thoughts before we sign off? Uh, I guess two things. I just want to add a a touch more on, um, and I won't, you know, cover this in great detail, um, but I've noticed that when it comes to self-care and more in the form of burnout prevention, I keep hearing other doctors um, talk about how they can't do it anymore because um, this patient or that patient is draining them too much or this doctor or other you know, colleagues are demanding too much of them. Um, aside from all those self-care practices we discussed earlier, setting boundaries is also a form of self-care. Um, a lot of doctors struggle with that and that's because of our people pleasing tendencies and I think that's probably gonna come from a large proportion of doctors are firstborns and first firstborn children do have a more ple- people pleasing kind of um, type personality so um, yeah just setting boundaries it's your job Unfortunately, this is an activity only you can do. You and and just like how you know, uh, at the, it come back. It comes back to the start where I said, no one's going to do it for you. You're gonna you're gonna have to be the one that looks out for yourself. Yeah, and um, you need to do this as well. No one's going to set the boundaries for you. Your patient's not going to know what's okay or not okay in terms of pushing you to your limits when it comes to your appointment times, you know, them booking in a 15-minute appointment and expecting you to push it to 40 minutes, they're not going to know that um, as well as you do. They're not going to, you are the one who knows your limits. So, yeah, setting those boundaries is is another really important self-care activity. And it is also another one of those things where it is hard to do initially, just like mindfulness was really hard to do at the start. You know, when I first started, a lot of people struggle with it and that's normal. Setting boundaries is also very uncomfortable, and but it can be a little bit easier the more you do it. And then my very last message, which I have been going around trying my best to spread and I think is what will hopefully help change the culture in medicine is to understand and be reminded that if we're struggling, that is that does not mean we're weak. You know, if we're struggling, chances are it simply means that it's our first time doing something and therefore it's not easy and therefore we struggle. Like if it's our first time riding a bike, of course we struggle. The first time we drove a car, we struggled, you know, so it's the same thing in medicine and we need more senior doctors who are taking on trainees and teaching them to be reminded of that and be kind and be patient, you know, just because your trainee is struggling doesn't mean they're stupid. It just means that it's their first time and they just need your experience hand and and your knowledge and your wisdom to just 
guide them through these first couple of times until they feel comfortable to, you know, do it themselves. Um, so um, I think that's probably the biggest stigma that needs to be broken down. And I think that once everyone starts to accept that struggling does not equal weakness, I think we'll find more and more doctors being more comfortable and open with talking about their struggles. And the more we share, just like what you and I are doing, Nadine, the, you know, the better it's going to be for everyone. That's how we're going to change the culture. That's how we're going to, you know, break down the stigma even further. I think it's really important. Those are really, really great points you, you've you made, really good messages. I think another thing that really would help, and I wish I had done this a long time ago, but that is okay because I wouldn't be here now if I hadn't had to learn these lessons. The mindfulness component and really being able to, when you're really paying attention to what's happening, in the moment, and you're accepting what's happening in the moment, whether it feels great or it doesn't, that's why you let go of judgment and you observe. It's really important in what I heard you say to be able to look at something that's situational versus a trend. So are you unhappy because of this thing, this obstacle, or these particular challenges in this moment, but they'll go away? Or are you finding that that unhappiness is underlying and it's not a good fit or for you? And so can you use your power of agency and discernment to figure out what's really best for you as a person so that you can then be empowered to go on and make the greatest contribution that you can? to your community through your work at the end of the day. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that also comes back to that whole argument about, so currently in Australia, um, there's a lot of debate going on in terms of, there are a lot of um, hospitals and organizations putting out campaigns to tell doctors to be more gritty, to be more resilient, and therefore that will solve all the issues. Uh, and then, of course, there's then the outcry from doctors being like, no, well, you guys need to change all the things. It's the organizational problem. But in, in, at the end of the day, it, it's it's both. You know, you as an individual, you do need to do what you can do. Focus on the things that you can control, because otherwise, if you stress on about how horrible the organization is or, you know, whatever the hierarchy and all that, you're going to end up being really, really anxious and miserable and that's not going to help. Um, so, you know, we as individuals, if we are not in positions of power, if we're not sitting on the board of the hospital to make any big changes, then we need to make the small changes um, for ourselves. So like you said, um, yeah, I, I totally agree with you there. Well, I thank you so very much for sharing your time and your wisdom with us today, Dana. Um, I'm grateful for you. I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you, Nadine. Thank you so much for having me on your show. It's so great to, you know, catch up again. And um, yeah, th uh, thank you so much for, you know, doing what you do. All right. We did it. <laughs> Health Raisers. Health Raisers don't just survive. Together, we thrive. I'm your host, Dr. Nadine. in community. We are not in isolation from one another. We are completely interconnected and interdependent. Community is not one group serving another, or not even everybody working together. It's seeing the good in yourself within community and seeing the good of the others within the community. It doesn't take anything away from me to be able to encourage somebody else mm. and vice versa. We thrive in our bodies, my value is that I want to age with strength. 
and be able to have the most quality of life for the longest amount of time. That's my driver. You have to have an intimate relationship with yourself first and foremost. Never mind your husband or your wife or partner, or whatever. It starts here. So one thing is it's good for our brain's physical health to get to sleep. Second, memories consolidate and sleep. Mm-hmm. It's really important to identify what makes your body function at an optimal level. Mm-hmm. The way we do that is being very sensitive to the foods we eat and how we feel afterwards. We thrive in our minds. We make ourselves such low priorities that unless it's obvious, we don't take care of it ourselves. We are socially and culturally conditioned to avoid self-care and it's wrong. Years later, lots of therapy, lots of other things, I have now learned to be able to say like, everybody doesn't have to be your friend at the same level. Um, It's certainly a a quality versus quantity. What do you want? Why do you want it? We thrive in our spirits. Fear and faith can't occupy the same frequency. I am nature and nature is me. And you can't separate it. There is a power in me to choose my journey. And if I want to choose my journey, I have to cultivate my soul. We thrive in our intellect. Better beats perfect every time. And so I think I think the mistakes are beautiful because it gives us a reason to get up and push for something and grow and, and, and find a new level of ourself. Variety is important in your daily life because it's really good for your brain. And we thrive in our emotions. There's something about common experience that creates a deep, loving community. You will serve others better when you meet your own needs. You can serve from an empty vessel, but you will be angry, Mm -hmm. frustrated, very unhappy, and Mm -hmm. that comes through in your interactions with other people. The more agreeable we are, the more likely we are to forgive. I think kindness is a way of somebody conveying to us that our dignity matters to them. Come join this health revolution. Bring your whole self to your whole life.